0: Hi, this is Martin Coburn, founder of Natural Direction. Very excited today to be joined by Dr. Jack Zenger and Dr. Joe Folkman, co-founders of Zenger Folkman, a company based in Utah, USA. Now, for those of you are listening and not familiar, perhaps a little background. Uh, founded in 2003, uh, Zenger Folkman focuses on an evidence-driven, strength-based methods to improve organizational performance and the people within them. Personally, I've been using their tools and ideas and strategies and products for over 10 years of my clients to fantastic impact. They co-authored some 13 books together, including the groundbreaking research, The Extraordinary Leader, and How to Be Exceptional. Both books I'd highly recommend uh, to my listeners. Um, they both regular contributors to Forbes and HPR. So welcome, Jack and Joe.
1: Thanks, Martin. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
0: Fantastic. And listen, can we just start off? Because, um, you know, I am a Brit. We are in London, and we have to talk about the weather. Having been to Utah and experienced the beautiful countryside there, so tell me, what is the weather doing this morning in Utah, a beautiful place you live?
1: Well, it's the first day of fall, and it is a beautiful, uh, crisp, 70-degree uh, temperature outside, and the sun
0: is shining. Fantastic. And, uh, well, after a glorious, glorious week of sunshine here, which is pretty unusual always in September, we have returned to good old, British London weather. We have a light drizzle outside. So there we go. Anyway, thank you both very, very much for joining me on this podcast. I'm absolutely delighted uh, for you to be able to speak and communicate to our uh, listeners. Let me just firstly start by asking you, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges facing our leaders in the world today?
1: The other solution, I guess, that
0: that I see, Martin, is this revisiting
1: the organization's process by which they make decisions. Uh, Given the the rapid pace of change, given the general uncertainty, uh, it really calls for leadership teams to kind of come together and say, let's be very thoughtful about the, the decisions that we make. Let's not become paralyzed and become totally Uh, indecisive uh you know again the worst thing we can do is to do nothing but it is let's let's come together and and that requires the collaboration that joe was talking about but let's come together and really think about our future make some decisions and then let's act on it and and let's play our game and, and do the things that we know can be successful uh and i think it is that uh Pulling together, making decisions collaboratively, and then executing—that seems to be the formula that leads to to success.
0: Uh, the other issue I hear a lot about is impact of uh, globalisation and the fact that um, you know the world is becoming smaller. Organizations I see increasingly are organizing themselves um, around. The, and to reflect their own customers so they are having to shape their organizations to serve a global market and that of course means that leaders are having to lead at a distance and uh, I hear quite a bit about the challenges they have in trying to maintain levels of engagement and motivation
2: There's a organization uh, we Worked with as a technology organization in Japan, and they had offices—a uh, fairly large office—in uh, on the West Coast in Seattle area, and then they had office in Germany, uh, and they, they really—they uh, had a desire to let people live wherever they wanted to live because it didn't make any difference. But
0: in order to to have a call, where. <laughs> Everybody was on the phone for the for the management team. It required somebody to be having you know the call at 11, <laughs> 11 o'clock at night, and the calls would last about four hours. And they described one call where somebody fell asleep. <laughs> and, wow!
2: Uh, he wasn't on mute.
0: <laughs> oh no! Yeah, there we go.
2: And uh, you can imagine, but but. I recently, I, I met with an organization, and they had uh, completely, there was no office. No one had an office, and they were actually located on the East Coast, but no person, uh, you, you know, they didn't have an office space. Everybody worked out of their homes, and it, it, was, in, it was in terrible shape. We did assessments with the leaders, and they, they all got very, very negative scores. Engagement there was, we measured it in the sixth percentile. So, I, I mean, the direct reports of these people were just totally disengaged. And and what's fascinating about it is, is that a lot of the people that went to work there went to work there because they didn't want to interact with others. <laughs> right. Massive introverts and, and, you know, as we came together, it, it was like saying, you guys need, you need, to, you need to meet. You need to spend some time together. You need to talk to each other. You can't just run this organization and not have these conversations. And mm-hmm. that was a bit of a wake-up call to them. So it really is hard to do that.
1: I think the answer begins uh, with just what we're doing right now, and that is we're using technology to, to, to both be able to see and hear each other. Uh, I think the organizations that are doing this successfully are the ones whose whose leaders realize that, yeah, it's okay for us to be virtual. Yes, it's okay for us to be in different time zones, but we have to periodically be together and be eyeball to eyeball and face to face, and have some human interaction. And then in the in the in, you know in the interim periods, uh, we need to talk with each other frequently. Uh, you know, you hear stories about organizations where the, the leadership team uh, has a, a regular 8.30 a.m. Uh, call, may only last 10 or 15 minutes, but they stay together. And it seems to me that the, this uh, practice of ensuring that the senior people have a strong bond and frequent communication uh, is, is the key to it uh, being successful. And then that, that the organization be willing to invest in periodically bringing people together so that they maintain that that personal uh, connection. Uh, those are the you know the 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 more practical solutions I think to this very real challenge.
0: I think uh, I, I I totally agree with that, and I was uh, having a I mean closer to home for us is that how we deliver our uh, products and services to our clients is changing. And I'm I'm sure you are, I'm getting increasingly asked, uh, well, look, you know, we've got this global team, you know, we don't really want to have multiple locations for the leadership, you know, development programs. Can you not deliver this online? And um, I was having this conversation earlier in the week with somebody and I said, look, you know, were quite resistant to doing it and i said look i you know for 25 years i've you know worked face to face in workshops and i'm a you know big fan of that but i'm also um accepting of the fact that we do need to be able to communicate with people more regularly and and if that means that and, and a global audience and therefore we have to we have to just get our head around that and you know, my my experience is that once you get used to it and you start using these tools, you can actually achieve the same uh, level of, of connection. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, whether you're seeing seeing an increase in that. I mean, you serve a global audience, so what what's your thoughts on that in terms of the delivery of our types of products and services? Well, I do think you can get it done uh, and, and you can have a good experience. Uh, but we've yet to sort of find that
2: you get the same kind of effect as, as the in-person experience, you know, and and maybe we need to learn more tricks of the trade in terms of doing it. But there's something about being in a room together and we have, you know, some hmm. breakouts where people talk to others and things like that. And, and it is, again, I think we can make it good. Uh, but but to say it totally replaces the in-person experience is, is we're not there. We're not there
1: yet. I don't think. Yeah. And my sense is, this is Jack, yeah, that, that it's going to need to be, it's not either or, but it's going to be both. Uh, we're going to need to learn to use technology better, use it more frequently and then follow up on it. And that we, we can't just count on us, uh, you know, a Skype or a Zoom conversation to kind of suffice uh, periodically. We need to be be following up on those conversations and making sure that that the the execution is happening afterward. Uh, but yeah, I think the reality is we we've got competing values. We've got the values of kind of trying to cut down the amount of air travel and both for the wear and tear on your body, but also also for the impact on the environment. And so we're going to see increasing pushes to deliver uh, information and to help people connect using a variety of technology uh, solutions, uh, and th- that's that's
0: the that's the future. Uh, I I think we probably um, you know we probably need to accept the three of us that we are probably not representative of the. <laughs> Uh, larger population that are actually requiring uh the leadership development my my younger sons uh, and daughter you know they are probably more willing more able um, um better at communicating uh with technology and much more accepting of it and so so may, maybe the you know i think there's something about us being being willing to be more uh progressive Uh, with that at the same time but yeah we're we're old school we like being in a classroom we like being face to face you know uh, seeing the whites of people's eyes Uh, but um, I think this is actually quite a nice uh, segue to to talking about another subject and that is the motivating the multi-generational workforce you know all wanting different things being motivated by different values, wants, desires. I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to that. I mean, that is a um, a topic of conversation that comes up increasingly for me when I'm in a room full of, let me say, a, a slightly older generation of leaders, and we're having that having that conversation. It's there's quite a lot of split opinion um, about you know, how we go about that and the fact that, you know, there's sometimes I think people are still living with an expectation that the people, you know, the younger generation leaders um, should go through the same loops as uh, they have. But I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I, last week I got a a note from uh, Yolanda Mejia. She's uh, our partner in Mexico and she, she was. She asked the same question. You know, he says, "Give me some insight about millennials and and
2: their openness and uh, will they really work hard and will they do things?" And what what we found and we continue to find, uh, and we wrote a, a blog on this called something like the Much Maligned Millennial. He gets at this idea that there's a lot of kind of negative connotations around younger people uh, around their their willingness to kind of work hard or their diligence or their stick to itness and here's the thing as we've looked at our data and we keep looking at it we just don't find we don't
1: find the negative edge of that and that's not to say that they're not different the expectations aren't different but when you say they're not going to work as hard, they're not going to try as hard, they're not going to be as as, as diligent, it, we just don't find it. In, in our data, we don't see the kind of the, the negatives that are often attributed to the millennials. The data says that they're more open to, to feedback, that they're willing to work as hard, that they're very committed to organization goals. Uh, so... I guess our own experience and, and and our data does not confirm that there are huge differences in feelings of entitlement or in terms of their value systems. Now, there is some truth that they communicate differently, and they their their tolerance of, of you know kind of communicating via uh, their their smartphones while they're standing next to each other. Uh, amuses and and kind of irritates us sometimes, but that seems to me to be the biggest difference is just a a communication preference uh, and and tolerance. Uh, and it's not so much in the fundamental values or in terms of uh, their their willingness to aspire to higher positions mm. and to and to take work seriously. They they do value their personal time, and they're willing to give up a little bit of short-term compensation for a little more uh, freedom and a little more flexibility. Uh, but those differences are not huge. Expectations are probably a difference. A little higher. Their
2: willingness to wait in line until it's their turn. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, that's
2: certainly. I mean, you know, that's something that just is agonizing to them. And, and, uh, but but you know, on the positive
0: end, uh, boy, you know, if you don't have enough millennials working for you, you got to get some because they are. Well, I, I I certainly would uh I would certainly support everything you're saying. And I you know we you know we often. You know, we can judge based on what is what is it like as a as a life as a facilitator. What you want is a responsive audience and an appetite for learning, an ambition to progress. And I would totally support that. I I, I think that I'm seeing um experiencing, um, uh, you know, a, a willingness to want to play. It's not like a sort of criticism. Uh, of of uh, performance is a willingness to want to be open and, and and learn so I think the problem I think for for some it resides in their own you know it's a bit like back to our technology uh, point we're making earlier the issue isn't actually necessarily there it's in someone's head about what should be or what could or, or how things uh, how things used to be so yeah i'm I'm I personally for one you know if I have a a, a a group of millennials in an audience, I'm very, very happy. I'm thinking this is going to be a, this is going to be a great experience of, of learning. There are certainly more demanding for sure. And they expect information that is going to be practical and uh, ready to use because they're so used to getting things, uh, that much faster. But that's, that's a, that's a, that's a good, uh, provocation. I think for us as the providers, uh, of this, uh, of this information. We just wrote an article about, you know, in theory you would think that as people age, they they learn and they
2: improve and they get better and their effectiveness would go up over time. I mean, that's that's what we'd all like to believe. But Jack (laughs) made me look at the data. (laughs) What did we find,
1: Jack? Just the opposite. People do not get better with age. Um, they're not perceived by their you know, by their colleagues as being more effective as as managers as they age. In fact, it it tends to decline. <clears throat> Present company accepted, obviously, oh, but but
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> not everyone declines. But mm. There is a general decline, and and so when you think about that, and you kind of go, oh, "Gosh, we're looking at the millennials and saying blah blah blah," you, you know, and yet. The, when we look at the data and say, you know who's like, mm-hmm. part of it is, is this sense that that people have, that they've learned it all, that they're just in execution mode, and they're not in learning mode, and they don't need uh, additional training and development. And, and so we, we really take exception to that. We think that people need to be in that framework of saying, you know, you never too old to develop and to learn and to get new skills and and I I talked to people I said well have you been to a leadership development program well I did it about 10 years ago and I and I say mm-hmm. in the last decade <laughs> 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 is there anything different today you know and, and they go yeah everything's changed do you, do you think you might need a little bit of insight into how to, how to cope with that and yeah. that's that's
0: an interesting point. Sorry to butt that in. Just for the purposes of our listeners, uh, I didn't clarify this at the top of the podcast here, but um, you notice that Jack and Joe quite uh, quite often have referred to the data, and I didn't make the point that they have a huge. Um, for those who are not familiar, a huge body of data. I believe some million assessments now on about a hundred thousand leaders. Is that about right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so this provides, uh, a lot of data that we can take the guesswork out of, uh, you know, predicting what is likely to be able to enhance the quality of a leader. And I think that's certainly one of the reasons that I was, uh, drawn to working with you in the early stages that when we're, uh, in fact, I've just recently been asked to develop a, a competency model for a client, and, you know, it it, it really, and I know you've written a, a couple of articles on this, uh, Joe, and if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about that, because I think this is a, a, a developing area. As we're seeing appraisals change, end of year appraisals changing to sort of more uh, frequent uh, uh, more uh, pulse survey type touch points to gauge the performance of a leader. Uh, we're seeing a much more focus on the future. But also when it comes to competencies, I do feel that um, there needs to be some refresh in in terms of the way uh, you know, people are using competency frameworks. So could you just talk a little bit about where you see um, the real benefits are of using a, a research-based uh, competency framework versus let's go and devise our own.
2: Yeah. Well, there's there's these interesting trends, and one of them is, is that a lot of times CEOs start to believe that it's their prerogative when they take office to kind of create their own competency model, which really is a kind of... Uh, set of uh, assumptions they have about what leadership is and um, I, I always think that's an interesting interesting thing to do and one of the, the CEOs that uh, we work with actually went into his office one afternoon and and uh, you know walked out uh, you know after a couple of hours and Handed one of his uh, administrators a, a sheet of paper, and he said, "These are the competencies." Huh. And and uh, you know, and and he just you know intuitively he just came up with these things, and of course nobody actually knew what it meant <laughs> because he had some very kind of interesting uh, ways to uh, to verbalize it to talk about uh, these different competencies, but mm-hmm. you know. I was at a a pharma recently, and and I I asked them. I said, "You know, I, I I think I know how to cure cancer. Can I share my my insights with you?" And they said, "Well, where do they come from?" And I said, "Well, it's my intuition.
0: It's just my intuition about how I think to cure cancer." And they said, "Well, I don't think that's very valuable." And you go, "Okay." So, I'm a researcher research competencies and, and your CEO came up with a, a set of competencies. He says these are the behaviors that will, that will really, that, that are measurable, that, that really make a difference. What competency models ought to be is the specific activities
2: that leverage outcomes. Okay? It, it's yeah. what you can do to, to kind of uh, improve the success of the organization. And and as a, a psychometrician, basically what we've done is we've measured those things. And, and we know that uh, there's a set of behaviors, uh, and some of them are, are, are grounded in history. I mean, they're things that we've done for a long time. Some of them are newer, uh, but, but they're the behaviors. And, and the only way that I can ever identify those behaviors is by looking at the data. Is by studying them, and there's lots of things that I thought this is a great idea, that uh, you know this really ought to work. It doesn't work, but I tested it, and and that's the, the process we went through. So we're seeing some movements in competency models where one of the movements is towards simplification, and people uh, in some organizations, you know, they said, well, we don't want so many competencies, but that's okay. So What they've done is they've they've said, okay, we only want five competencies. And because as people think about, well, what's
0: important for a person to do, what they start to do is they start to sort of define a competency, uh, like they'll say accountability. And then, then you say, well, what is accountability? Well, it's actually these five different behaviors. So they... It, it, in, in, you know, again, they're trying to increase simplicity, but they create a model where they smush five different behaviors together. I and agree. Totally. And, and what you, you, you didn't do is you just created complexity. You just made it almost impossible for anybody to
2: understand how to progress because somebody gets a low mark in in. And accountability, and they say, well, what does that mean? And they go, well, it means five things. And you go, well, okay, I don't understand it because these are these are sort of different than the thing you're talking about. And so we're seeing a lot of that. It, it doesn't help, and that's not very beneficial. So what we bring to the party is research. And we can do this in organizations, but we bring a very precise way to measure the meaning And if you're going to take the time and the effort and the energy to to measure your leadership behaviors, wouldn't you want to measure
0: the things that really have an impact? It's like my formula formula to to cure cancer was to eat a lot of cucumbers and it just doesn't work. Uh, I think Steve Jobs tried his formula by eating a lot of fruit. That didn't work either. no, that's great, uh, and thanks for that. I think um, that if there's one thing we can do is to help leaders develop is to is to do that is to is to be very precise about the specific behaviours they need to work on that are going to bring about the greatest amount of change in the context of where that leader is heading and what they're trying to achieve. And I do I do think your model definitely does that. Uh, takes that guesswork out of it. You want to say anything on that, Jack? Are you happy with
1: that? No, I'm happy with that.
0: I think uh, it's
1: uh, the, the data tells you what, what the empirically predicts outcomes. And anything short of that is just you know, my, best, my best guess, my, my assumptions, uh,
0: but it's not evidence-based. Thank you. That's great. You have a leadership summit coming up, I believe is it in November. Right. Yeah. And I was talking to Joe and he, Jack, and he was saying that, um, I think some of the things you're going to talk about there, are more about some of the challenges facing our own profession and perhaps, uh, we could maybe just touch on that very lightly before we finish. So what are, what do you think some of the challenge are, challenges that are actually facing our own profession so that we can do a, um, a, you know, serve our clients better?
1: This is Jack. One of the things I think we need to do better uh, is that we need to push back a little bit uh, and not just accept all of top management's uh, requests uh, as if uh, we are able to roll over and and do them without having that have any consequences. And I'm thinking specifically of one of the realities of many organizations in many organizations is that the senior people often have development for all the people who report to them but personally don't get involved themselves. And yet we know that they are the role models, they set the example and I don't know about your experience but Invariably, when I've done programs with groups of executives, uh, they'll come over to me quietly and they'll say, "Well, now have have our bosses been through this? You know, Absolutely, have, have, yes, they, have they been definitely. exposed to this?" And because they're the ones who really need it, so I think one of the things that we need to need to look at hard is, do we let them off the hook by by not being active participants in our development process? I think a second issue is that we're we're too prone to kind of deal with people individually when we know that leadership is really a team activity in organizations. And I think a lot of, you know, writers and and consultants have recognized that, that leadership is a, a team sport and yet we tend to develop people one at a time individually and not realize how vital that, that team effort really becomes. Um, I think we. Our- so, can I
0: just clarify that then, yeah, uh, you Jack? Know. Are you are you suggesting that you know we need to view their development more holistically? You know, as a sort of as a kind of dynamic together. Is that what you're suggesting? So in other words, my behaviour uh, versus your behaviour plus someone else's behaviour is what we should be treating, not just the not just people in isolation. Is that what you're suggesting?
1: That is absolutely what I'm suggesting.
0: Uh, and that we,
1: we, we would never think of training a, a soccer team or a football team or a basketball team uh, as individuals one at a time. Uh, we need to kind of think about how we help them function well together, because it's not only their individual capabilities, but it's how they those individual capabilities fit together and get utilized by by each other that really do make uh, a, a big difference.
2: One of our most popular uh, articles uh, on HVR has been the trickle-down effect, where we demonstrated the fact that if you had a bad boss, you're a less effective leader, and if you have a really great boss, you tend to be a more effective leader. And, we did that
0: same analysis with peers and found if you work with a, a really very talented group of peers, your effectiveness went up. And if you work with a bunch of bozos, uh, that probably I don't <laughs> know, bozos work. In the, yeah. Bozos work. Yeah, we understand that. Bozos work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then your your effectiveness goes down, and that's exactly the point Jack's making. But but. Typically, when we have a development process, it's pulling people out of their work setting and then saying, OK, go to this leadership development thing, then go back into your work setting and and uh, try to improve. And and that's just kind of a funny process when you think about it as we pull people. And, you know, if you did that with a soccer team. You'd have everybody, you know, you'd have one group go to <laughs> the trade. They wouldn't do it together, right? And that wouldn't make that wouldn't make sense for the soccer team or the basketball team. I like that. I, I think the idea of treating the whole um, and seeing kind of organization living dynamic system uh, and how the, all the parts interact together. I mean, so much energy can be put in and so divisive energy often Uh, is being put into, you know, being territorial, scoring points, um, you know, and a number of other dysfunctional behaviours, taking people's eye away from the collective uh, goal of that team. So I I guess it brings my next uh, question, then, if that's what we want to do, how do we encourage uh, those teams to spend the time it, it truly deserves, because that's that's the tricky one. I, I mean, I find the further up I go in an organisation, the more challenging it is to get those people together uh, to spend time on these important issues. It's it's like you you need to step out of the step out of the issue and look at how the team is operating, not try and sort the problems and the difficulties of the business um, you know, through the, through the problem. It's like the problem is there because of the dysfunctionality in, in that group of people. So that's a, you know, encouraging people to spend that time, uh, together. I, I do find that quite, uh, that's quite a challenging, I don't know if you could, um, you know, not, not expecting great results. But not investing the right amount of time to get those results.
2: Well, then I think I think uh, Martin. One of the things we can do as practitioners here is is uh, and and, and you clearly we we've heard the call that people want to have shorter uh, but very dramatic learning experiences. Can, yeah. So you know, as you think about this idea of a micro learning experience and. And we started to design these, uh, you you know, where it's really what we're not talking about a day. We're talking about an hour. And as you think about this idea that that, that every leadership team ought to think about when they get together, uh, you know, they get together often, but at least once a year or maybe twice a year, they ought to have that that getting together be part of a micro learning experience where you spend an hour, and people are thinking about a topic. And so one of the topics we've been um, experimenting with is trust. And if you talk about a universal issue (laughs) that everybody seems to kind of connect to, it's trust. And what we found in our research is that there's three basic fundamental behaviors that build trust. And, and uh, we found a way to kind of think about that. And, and as teams get together, they can, you know, focus in on that trust issue. They can, every person walk away with a development plan for what
0: they could do to be more trusting and trusted. And, and I think we can do that uh, And organizations, need something like that. Mm, great. Fantastic. Thank you. Perhaps the last point on this is um, if we're getting them to work together, and we finally, you know, got them in the room. Uh, we've got them committed to the program. The, the, the area of uh, accountability and responsibility to getting those behavioral changes, there often is quite a reluctance on the part of each other to call each other out when they're not performing optimally. Um, I don't see this very often, but when I do, it's magical. To see a team be able to correct or call behavior out that is not conducive to the results they're trying to achieve, without people getting offended, you know. And I, I, I think you'd see this in sports teams. and little experience I have, um, you know, they, they, uh, they will call that out because they're about to play the game next Saturday. You know, in a few days' time, they're about to play the game again. So. You know, let let's let's correct the behavior now. But there's a big reluctance on the part of leaders to call themselves out.
2: Well, you you're right about that, and and I think part of uh, part of what we can do to help with that, uh, Martin, is is as teams think about this, and, and as, as you think about it with the team, I uh, I don't know that you're ever going to get. You know every team to do this but boy the thing we found is this is where 360 assessments just really make a lot of sense Uh, because if you can anonymously call people out (laughs) (laughs) yeah and 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 what I found is is that, that that people do it if you can if you again and and so we come back to this whole issue that well how often should people engage and get 360 feedback? And we think it's every two or three years. So we're going to do our 360s in, in uh, December, uh, and we've we've done them every two or three years. We we do another 360, and guess what? Well, you always learn something new.
0: Yeah, I so think- I'm glad to hear you're practicing what you
2: preach. Well- <laughs> <laughs> We we think it's important, but, but you know it's good for us. And 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 executive teams need to think about this as as, as saying, you know, every two or three years we need to go through this experience. Uh, I met with the team recently and I said, you know, you guys are at the 48th percentile. Are you excited about that? <laughs> I find you just two points below average. <laughs> is that what you thought you were? And they said, no, we thought we were in the top quartile. Well, you're not. And oh, by the way, the engagement of your direct reports is at the 25th percentile. Uh, people don't understand where they're at.
1: It's like we're not keeping score on the leadership dimension. Um, and I think that illustrates one of the things that, that we are you know, deeply convinced of, and that is what, what was so powerful about uh, Dr. David Eddy here in the United States that kind of launched this campaign around evidence-based medicine was that he had had the ability to look at aggregate data. Because he could see bodies of data, he could go back to the medical profession and say, you know, chest x-rays don't do any good. They do more harm than good. Putting silver nitrate drops in baby's eyes does, does more harm than it does good. Uh, but you can only make those kind of conclusions when you see aggregate data. That, that's one key to it. I guess the final thing I would sort of propose, Martin, is that if you can get leadership teams to uh, develop the habit of the most senior people asking for feedback from the group on a regular basis it changes a lot it makes that feedback process and calling each other out a lot more palatable when you've asked for it rather than when someone has to muster up the courage to kind of tell you uh, without any you know without any receptivity on your part that, that, that they're that they know about and um, so I, I think the, the idea of encouraging people to, to seek feedback from each other uh, can be a real game changer uh, in this ability of organizations to have good visibility about what behavior gets in the way, what behavior really contributes, what should we start doing that we're, you know, that we're, we're not doing right now. Yeah. Uh, those are the kinds of messages that can best be delivered when someone has opened the door and asked for it
0: And i think that that beautifully describes the hallmark of the highest performing teams you know when they can do that and they can do it openly they can do it in a trustful way they can do it without fear of people you know taking advantage of the, the, the trust to be able to demonstrate vulnerability that is a very powerful place, and the team—you can see it. You just—I mean, it's—it's like, it's like being in a room full of people. Uh, um, when you when when that is going on, it is quite magical. It doesn't happen um, by chance. It happens by choice, and it happens by them gradually starting that process of asking for feedback and then feeling comfortable with it, recognizing that they're growing from it. I think that's very very powerful. So yeah, very very well said. Um, so, look, let, just before we uh, wrap up here, uh, we called our, this podcast Leadership Inspiration, uh, namely because there are uh, two things I'm particularly interested in uh, myself. So I want to ask both of you, what is personally for you your, uh, your leadership inspiration? What continues to inspire you uh, to what other people?
2: No, one of the inspirations that I get is uh, the resiliency of people to kind of continue to work hard and try hard. And, you know, people really do want to be better. They want to improve themselves. Uh, part of the problem is is, is it, it, it's like we don't know where we're at. I mean, it's hard to improve when you think you're doing okay. Right. If you ask people, if you're an above-average driver, about 73% of the people say they're above average. Well, you know, that's kind of impossible. And, and if you ask people if they're
1: a good leader, they go 90% say, yes, I'm a good leader. Very few people think they're not. And so, but, but when you let people know what the score is, when you let people know where they're at, their their willingness to improve and their willingness to do get better and their willingness to kind of you, you know people want to do that people want to get better they want to make a difference they want to have an impact if we can just show them the way and and I think and and what works uh, they'll do it one thing for me martin would you repeat the question that you asked there was a little bit of static here on our end and i want to be sure i'm answering the question that right. you right uh, okay
0: so no problem uh what i was saying jack was that um we're calling the podcast leadership inspiration right and uh mainly because there are two things that i'm most interested in and so my question For you is what continues to provide your leadership inspiration to continue uh, inspiring the development of leaders and being a better leader yourself indeed (laughs) if that's possible Uh, Jack yeah (laughs) (laughs) after 50 years of practicing it Uh, Uh. (laughs) (laughs) you're done you've got there (laughs) you
1: know what what in a Speaking funny
0: way. That, stop there, Jack. I mean, let me just let me just say this. Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, I. I know we're on a podcast for me, but you are an inspiration to me. Fifty odd years of inspiring leaders, and I remember a time we were in Milan together. We were going around the table, and we were we were introducing ourselves. And I suddenly realised there was someone sitting across the table from me that had been in the profession. um, 25 30 years more than me and i'm thinking i'm i'm virtually coming towards the end (laughs) (laughs) thinking that is incredible and here you are still today what is it what is the what is that motivation for you to be jumping on a plane going around the world writing books that is pretty incredible so where what's the what's the seed that drives you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: and just to know, Jack's jumping on a plane
0: tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Do you know, Martin,
1: I, I believe it is this kind of um, maybe odd belief that my best days are ahead of me rather than behind me. Uh, what
0: well, uh, uh,
1: That I, you know, I really do believe that uh, that there's a lot of good new ideas out there that are yet to be discovered, that there are. Good blogs that need to be written, that are good books that need to be created. And uh, I, I think um, I have this very deep abiding feeling about there's always great things to look forward to in the future rather than sort of sitting back and sort of uh, rejoicing or kind of resting on my laurels and, and saying, well, here's look at what I've done. So I don't know. if That's all I can think of.
2: <laughs> you know, the other well, thing that Jack always talks about is the idea that, that what we do actually helps people. You know, yeah. that, that we create change. You know, that,
0: that, that we don't do it, but they do it. But we give them the tools. And that idea that, that you know, we can, you know, we, we can make people better. That's that's pretty inspiring. Very inspiring. And and then in- I think inspiring for anyone in an act of leadership for them to, you know, recognize the responsibility they hold to the development of other people. Because, you know, when you're being led by somebody, you want them to be great. You want them to be, you know, you spend a lot of time on the receiving end of your leader day in, day out. You know, you know, what is it like to, it's one of the questions I've been asking leaders a lot recently, what is it like to be on the receiving end of your leadership every day, your meetings, your emails, you know, your conversations, when things go wrong, people want to be led by somebody who's inspiring. So long may you too continue uh, writing, thinking, and contributing to the development of leaders. I know you've inspired me, um, and, um, you know, long may you continue doing that. So thank you very much to you both. Really appreciate, you. your, appreciate your time. Thanks, um, thank you. Thank you. You've inspired us. Yes. Uh, you thank are, you very much. <laughs>
2: what, what's, what's amazing to us, Martin, is uh, you develop some material and you think, this is pretty good. But when we watch you deliver it. <laughs> <laughs> you make it better. You take it to <laughs> a whole other level. Wow. Well. Like, This is really
0: good. (laughs) That's what I love to do. And that's, you know, why we work very, very well together. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you once again. All right. You're welcome. Thank you.